0: Second Peter chapter 3 this morning, and we're going to, uh, Lord willing, <laughs> uh, and I think we can accomplish it, that uh, we're going to try and finish this book of Second Peter today, which I was looking forward to doing this, so hopefully this will be the 12th and final message on Second Peter, and we uh, uh, should be able to go from there. Uh, I'm going to read uh, a somewhat a lengthy passage, but it's not really that lengthy. So I'd ask you if, in honor of God's word, you wouldn't mind standing. Uh, those of you who are able to do so and can do so comfortably, uh, please do that. Dear friends, this is already the second letter I'm writing to you, in both of which I'm attempting to stir up your sincere mind by a reminder. To remember the words proclaimed beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, above all knowing this, that in the last days scoffers will come with scoffing, following according to their own desires, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued just as they have been from the beginning of creation." For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that the heavens existed long ago and the earth held together out of water and through water by the word of God, by means of which the world that existed at that time was destroyed by being inundated with water. But by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly people. Now, dear friends, Do not let this one thing escape your notice. That one day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not delaying the promise, as some consider slowness, but is being patient toward you, because he does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will disappear with a rushing noise, and the celestial bodies will be destroyed by being burned up, and the earth and the deeds done on it will be disclosed. Because all these things are being destroyed in this way, what sort of people must you be in holy behavior and godliness while waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be destroyed by being burned up and the celestial bodies will melt as they are consumed by heat. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness resides. Therefore, dear friends, because you are waiting for these things, make every effort to be found at peace, spotless and unblemished in him. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our dear brother Paul wrote to you, according to the wisdom that was given to him, as he does also in all his letters, speaking them about these things, in which there are some things hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable distort to their own destruction as they also do the rest of scriptures we're going to read a little later the last few verses of chapter three as well let's go lord in order prayer father uh we thank you for bringing us here and giving us the grace to get through another week and handle the uh, challenges that life has thrown at us and lord uh, we know that we all have a little bit of spiritual um, attention deficit disorder where we are distracted by many things going on in our lives and sometimes it's hard to focus on you so we ask right now that you would rebuke and bind the spirits of distraction that the enemy would send to us that you'd focus our attention on your word and that father you would use a vessel that's not worthy of honor to pour out your word that is so very worthy of honor father for Give us of our sins and our imperfections, our constant yielding to iniquity and still more iniquity. Lord, cleanse our hearts and our minds and focus our attention. Thank you for this family of God that you brought together today to be here and for those who are also worshiping online with us because of their inability to be here. And we just pray that you would bless them as well. Now, Father, I pray that you would speak through me by your Spirit and that you alone would get the glory. For we pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. <clears throat> so today we want to look at the perspectives on the Lord's coming. And there's a, a couple of different perspectives here and then some things we need to do uh, depending on which of the two camps we're in. And the first is that believers remember the Lord's return. Believers remember the Lord's return. Now, Peter says in the first couple of verses of this that this is his second epistle and that he's writing for the same purpose in the first epistle which was to remind us of some things in fact is Peter's probably one of the New Testament authors that uses the word remembrance or reminder uh, more than any other New Testament author. He, he makes a point of this that he is, he is reminding this and he addresses his readers as dear friends or really beloved loved ones. It's the, that uh, word agape toy and we know agape is that word for that dedicated uh, Christian kind of love that comes from God. And uh, actually, he uses that word four times in this chapter, once to refer to the Apostle Paul, several times to refer to his reader. And he says this is his, his second letter to this group. But even more importantly than that, he tells the purpose behind the letter. He says that I want to stimulate you to some wholesome thinking, some pure thinking. Uh, it basically, it's the same words that we have in 2 Peter 1.13 that he says he wants to refresh our memory Now, what kind of things does he think we need to be reminded of? Well, one, he wants us to remember that God hears our thoughts. Now, I don't know about you, that's scary to me. Uh, Sometimes my thoughts aren't very Christian. Sometimes my thoughts are pretty depressing or my thoughts give evidence of a lack of faith in God or a lack of vision for the future. But, but but the phrase that he used here, elecrine dianion, means wholesome thinking. It could also be rendered to have a sincere mind or to have a pure disposition. Now it's interesting that the Latin word for sincere uh, is two words, sine sera, which means without wax. And what they would do is, and very often when they would fire pottery in a kiln and put some kind of glass glaze on it, they would get that pottery, and somehow or other, there'd be a little mishandling, or not just the right temperature in the kiln, and the pottery would get a little tiny crack in it. And so what they would do is they would take some wax, and they would put it in the crack of the pottery, because then when you're looking at it, it all looks pretty and shiny, and it all looks the same. But a, uh, And I had the opportunity to do this one time in Taiwan in 1982. Judy and I found some Blue and white pottery. She's kind of nuts about blue and white pottery. and uh, So anyway, we found some on the side of the road for sale, and we, we walked over to this guy. and uh, uh, it, Two things were very interesting about the encounter. One is, is I actually held some pottery up, and I kind of aimed the top toward the sun, and I turned it, and I was looking for light to shine through. And then one piece of pottery actually did see that. And uh, Because uh, there was a slight crack and the light shone through. And so uh, Peter is basically sellin- telling us that just as uh, pottery makers will use wax to cover up the flaw in-, in a pot and we need to hold those things up to the sun to determine whether it's the real deal. He says that our thoughts need to be sun-judged or judged by the light of God's word, judged by the purity and the holiness of Jesus Christ. And that every word that we say and every thought that we think needs to be held up to that kind of thing. And the other interesting thing, I said there were two interesting things. One was me looking for the crack because I had studied this passage. Uh, The other thing that was interesting is uh, I heard Judy for the first time, uh, she's, she's normally laid back. Uh, But this guy was trying to charge us way too much, and I heard her say in Chinese, you think I'm a stupid American, but I grew up here, and you're not going to fool me. (laughs) And so she kind of let him have it about knowing that that price was too high. So we need to remember that our thoughts, our motives, our intents, our words are going to be judged by the Lord. Secondly, we need to remember the authority of the word. And Peter reminds them again in verse 2, because here he equates, basically talks about, The holy prophets, and then he says, and the words of the apostles, basically he's saying the words of the apostles are on the same level of authority as the Old Testament prophets. And by equating that, Peter is essentially saying to us today, we need to hold both the Old Testament and New Testament in equal regard. We need to listen to them both because they're God's word, and that the apostles who wrote the uh, books of the New Testament uh, that they were speaking by the authority of God. And they were just like the, the oracles of God in the days of the Lord. In Acts chapter 3, verse 21, uh, Luke says, Whom heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things, about which God spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from earliest times. He said the things the apostles are speaking today, they're really just speaking what the prophets spoke from uh, the earliest times. And Paul said in Ephesians, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. In other words, there were some things in the Old Testament, they were kind of in shadow, they were kind of in symbol, it was a little hard to figure them out, but now we can understand the Old Testament because we have Jesus Christ revealed in the New Testament, and we know that these things in the Old Testament are the shadows, and Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross are the substance. And he says the the prophets spoke the truth, but now we can really understand it because of Jesus Christ. So the command, he, he talks about the command of our Lord and Savior. So he's referring to the teachings of Jesus Christ, which were proclaimed by the apostles. And Jude in verse seventeen, and I, I'm almost thinking maybe we'll just jump to Jude. I think I can get through that. It's just one chapter. He says, "But you, dear friends, remember the words proclaimed beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ." So once again, the Bible attests to the authority of the writers of of the New Testament and what that meant. So Peter's linking of the prophets, and the apostles, place. Uh, The New Testament, it's writers on equal footing with the divinely inspired prophets of the Old Testament. Paul says in Ephesians 2.20, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He says everything really is about Jesus. He's the cornerstone. Cornerstone was that thing everything had to line up with. Uh, they would make a, as perfect a cube as they could. They'd set it in, and they would make sure that that was a perfectly 90-degree right de- angle, that they have a perfect corner, and the rest of the building, all the wall had to line up with this, and this wall had to line up with that, and the cornerstones were particularly important if you wanted a building to be built right. And so everything that we kn- think or we know about Scripture, we have to see, does it line up with Jesus? You know, the, the Bible should be the final rule of faith and practice for all Christians, but when you're interpreting the Bible, you need to make sure that it lines up with Jesus himself. That helps you understand whether or not the interpretation you've chosen is correct. So we need to recall the writings of both Testaments, and both the Old and New Testament tell us about the Lord's return, which is the subject of chapter 3. Now by the way there's only 17 people in the Bible listed as an apostle and some of the ones maybe are not the ones you're thinking. Uh, for example uh, we know that Jesus himself in the book of Hebrews is called an apostle. Uh, the, the Greek word apostello simply meant one, uh, means one sent. It's one that was sent from God uh, and it was commissioned by God, he was called by God and obviously the father sent the son. Uh, We know that Barnabas was called an apostle. We know that the test in the New Testament for whether someone could be an apostle was what did he see the risen, resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. And not only that, when they were picking someone to take Judas Iscariot's place, they said, who's been with us since the time of Of John the Baptist and and has now seen Jesus raised from the dead and they narrowed it down to two and they picked Matthias as one of those so he's called an apostle and there's a couple of others that you might not be familiar with if I remember right Andronicus is one of those uh, there's 17 people there now if somebody goes around today claiming that they are apostles and you'll hear this a lot uh, there are uh, there's a popular tv preacher in the south Dallas area in the mid-cities who refers to him himself as, as an apostle. And the Mormons believe that they have 12 apostles uh, in their church. But these are ju- this is just heresy. It's not the Bible standard of an apostle, and one who claims that is just a false teacher. Now... So believers remember the return of Christ, but here's the other perspective. Scoffers laugh at the return of Christ. And this is, this is a big thing. You can kind of see this guy laughing and pointing his finger at you, making fun of you because you believe that Jesus is coming back and, and where is the promise coming? And, and I'm sad to say that a lot of these scoffers are in church today because a lot of Christians no longer believe in the imminent bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I certainly do. That's what the word teaches us and I'm convinced that it's true because God has never let down on any of his promises. And when Jesus said that he was coming back again, that's good enough for me. But this is what scoffers do. They mock in this. And so Peter talks about this and Peter believed that he was living in the last days. Now, was he wrong? not, Not depending on how you talk about the last days. The last days are simply the days between the time Christ went up back into heaven, he ascended into heaven, and the time we see him coming back. So Peter did live in the last days. You and I are living in the last days. Now, does that mean that Jesus is going to come today? Is he going to come tomorrow? The only thing I can say for sure is that if we all believe he's coming on a certain day, that will be the one day he's not coming. That's the only thing I know because Jesus says, as a time that you think not, the Son of Man cometh. So if we all agree that he's coming tomorrow at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, we can all take a deep breath because he's not coming tomorrow at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, if, if we really believe that. Uh, but, but the last days, we're living in those days. Now we're going to talk in a minute how in the world could Peter believe it's in the last days, and it's been 2,000 years, well not quite 2,000, but it's been 1,900 and some odd changed years since Peter wrote these words, and we'll get to that in a minute. Now, Peter says that the most prominent negative reaction that those who are not believers or those who have backslidden or those who do not have a proper understanding of Scripture have toward the return of Christ is simply to mock it. And the words, first of all, he's saying this is the biggest thing that they do. He says it would be scoffers. They mock at the return of Christ. And and he says they, they refuse to believe in a returning Savior and a coming judgment. And because of that, they live their lives to fulfill their own evil desires. Listen, if you don't think that Jesus is coming back and that there's going to be a day of judgment, why not do whatever you want to do? It's kind of like. People that think that the boss is never going to catch them sleeping at work or playing the flight simulator when they're supposed to be productive or stealing uh, office supplies from the, uh, the cabinet in the, the copy room or anything like that, if they think that no one's ever going to hold them accountable, then they'll just kind of do what they want. Human nature is that we kind of turn towards sin unless we know that there's some kind of accountability. Now, he said they'd laugh in the last days. Hey, uh, look, look at how he describes them. This is from chapter 2 we read a, a few weeks ago. He says, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed, they're not afraid to speak evil of dignitary. So what do we know about scoffers? They're presumptuous. What is their presumption? They believe everything in the future is going to be just like it's always been in the past and that God's not going to intervene and God's not going to make any changes. We'll come back to that idea in a minute. They also are self-willed, which means who's on the throne of their heart? Who decides what they get to do and what they're comfortable with and what morality is? Well, they do. And then Jude, in verse 16, says these are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lust." Well, first of all, there's a lot of this today. Uh, our, our society is no longer civil. Uh, it, it's just uh, it's sad what our country has devolved into. But we, we have people now that are murmuring, complaining. We've already had people contact our family asking if they can spend election night with us because they're afraid there are going to be riots where they live, depending on the outcome of the election. Now, I'm glad people think the, the Roland house is a safe house, and I don't know if... Uh, particularly why they think that other than the fact I tend to be well armed but uh, that's what they want to come and they want to be protected there Uh, it's sad though that we've come to a society where we can all get along even if things don't go, quite go our way. I don't remember it being quite like that. Now I remember the riots in the 1960s over the Vietnam War, and I'm dating myself a little bit there. But I don't remember this level of, of sheer, you know, people get mad because they don't think they're getting ways and they just decide to riot and destroy things. But murmurs, complaining, complainers, walking after their own lust certainly describes the scoffers of Peter's day and of today. Uh, Jude 18, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their ungodly lust. By the way, I'm, I'm not sure this is true, but if somebody wants to go do a study for me this week, I'm guessing, and that's purely a guess, and I'm not a betting man, but if I were, I might take a chance on this. I am guessing that the word ungodly occurs more in the book of Jude than any other uh, book of the New Testament. In fact is, I can definitely tell you, it says it more uh, per verse than any other book in the New Testament. So Jude is telling us that that's going to be happening in the last days. Now, what is the nature of their mocking? Uh, They say, where is this return he promised? Where's this coming he promised? Where is this Jesus if you think he was coming back? Now, this, what they're saying is based on something called uniformitarianism. Now, that's a big word, but there's basically two, two meanings of that, or actually just one meaning, but maybe a couple different applications. Uniformitarianism means that everything in the future will be based on the consistent, uh, consistency of history in the past. For example... Uh, in geology, there's this thing called geologic uniformitarianism. So what happens is people that uh, believe in evolution, when they're looking at the different strata of fossils, and they say, well, at this level, there's these fossils, this level, these fossils, and this is maybe the the Pliocene age, and this is you know some other age, and this is some other age, and they give names to all these layers, they're discounting the fact, that it's very easy to go elsewhere in the world and find the same fossils at different layers because of the great flood that came in the book of Genesis chapter 6 and chapter 7. So sometimes a fossil that you find at one layer now is way down at another layer just because of the turbulence of waters and how uh, deposits were uh, put down and uh, some of us have been a number of years ago went out to Glen Rose and saw a wonderful example of this where fossils were found at a layer that everybody says they should not be found at, a particular fossils. But there is this geologic uniformitarianism and most evolutionists say well these animals occurred at this time, these animals occurred at this time because we always find their fossils in this layer and we know how slowly sediment settles on the earth and how slowly dust settles in the earth and all that. The, the assumption is you believe everything in the future is going to be based on how things happened in the past. Well, this is essentially what the scoffers are doing. They, they say, well, going back, and they go all the way back to the time of the fathers, and we'll get to that on the next slide, but they, they say if we go all the way back to the Jewish ancestors, we haven't seen any, any great interventions of God in, in history since that time, so why should we expect that God... Uh, that Jesus Christ would come back, uh, and that He would return. After all, that kind of things never happened in Scripture before. Isn't it interesting, though, that the very person of Jesus Christ, He Himself, uh, doesn't fit uniformitarianism. He doesn't fit the way things are always done. One is He was born of a virgin. Now, obviously, scoffers don't believe that, and if you don't have a Christ born of a virgin, then you would have Jesus with a sin nature who would have sinned, in which case he could not have been our sin sacrifice. He was born without a sin nature because he didn't have a father. Paul tells Timothy that the sin nature is passed from the father to the children rather than from the mother to the children. And that's because Eve was ignorant in what she did in the garden, but Adam was fully aware of And so here we've got an incident where he says, you know, they they believe that everything's going to go on as it's always been, but the virgin birth had never happened. Not only that, uh, no one else has ever been resurrected from the dead and stayed alive. Now, we obviously had a few incidents. There was a the skeleton in the Old Testament that, that uh, he, the dead guy fell down into a grave that had uh, prophet's bones and he comes back to life. Uh, we have uh, some a widow's son who's raised by one of the prophets of God and comes back to life. We have Lazarus that Jesus, if I remember correctly, Jesus showed up at four funerals in the New Testament and he ruined all of them because the dead person came back to life. You couldn't be around Jesus without him ruining a funeral. he was life and he is life and so these people would come back to life and yet you know there's never been another instance of resurrection where somebody came back to life and then never died again that's pretty remarkable And so he himself destroys this idea. He's already interrupted the natural order of the cosmos. Now, you're going to hear me use this word cosmos a few times. So let me just tell you that the Greek word cosmos really means the world of people. It's not really talking about the space and the planets and the star, which we usually think of when we use that word, but the Bible uses it in a more narrow sense. Now, John 14, listen to what Jesus says about what is going to happen, even though it's not uniform with everything that's gone before it. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's saying, I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to take you to go live where I am. Now, that's a pretty great promise. That's pretty fantastic. Uh, Luke in Acts chapter 1 and verse 11 quotes the angels who after Jesus ascended to heaven and everybody's kind of standing up with their jaw hanging open and going, wow, look at that. The angels show up and say, you men of Galilee, why stand ye here gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which was taken from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Now, had anybody else in history ever just been taken up into heaven? Well, I can think of two. I can think of Elijah who got on a fiery chariot and, and, and uh, Elisha saw Elijah depart and Elijah threw his mantle down and Elisha got it. And he had prayed for a double portion of the spirit of God that had fallen on Elijah. So yes, someone was taken to heaven. But Elijah, uh, he does kind of, we think, make an appearance in, in uh, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, where Moses and Elijah appear to talk to Christ, but we haven't seen Elijah just come back. Uh, Enoch, uh, the Bible says that Enoch walked with God, and one day God says, why don't you come up to heaven for a day? Enoch says, okay, and when Enoch got up there, he found out it was day all the time, so he's never been back. He he, he ascended, and he never came back. Uh, But Jesus says, you know, the angels say, hey, this one that went up, you watch, he's coming back in the same exact way. That doesn't uh, fit that uniformitarianism. Things are going to be different in the future. Why? Because God is the God of miracles and God intervenes in history that's what God does because he's God. You see, if you don't believe that things change and you don't believe in miracles, then you believe in a God who basically, uh, you, you have deism. Deism means you believe that God wound up creation, then he left it alone, and he doesn't intervene in it at all. And we, there are some people in, in our country's history that have believed that. So the scoffers think history's on their side. They, they ignore some history. It's interesting here that they, they, they say, you know, going back to the time of our fathers, that is the going back to the time of the Old Testament patriarchs. Hey, nothing, nothing big has happened since that time. There haven't been any huge uh, days of the Lord or days of judgment or second comings of a Messiah in that time, so why should it happen now? So Peter is going to remind them of their history. See, It's one thing to study history, but sometimes you need to go a little further back. Because if you go all the way back to Genesis 6, something happened that had never happened before and has never happened since that time. What was that? The Great Flood. This is when God decided to judge the world by water. So Peter reminds them of a few things. First of all, he goes all the way back to creation. That's just about as far back as you can go. And he says, listen, on the second day of creation... God created the sky, but then, on the third day of creation, God took the earth, which the Bible says was formless and without it didn 't have form and it was empty, it was void and it says there was only one thing on the earth: there was water because it says the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. In fact is, there is a a Chinese word that the characters for that mean the spirit hovering like a dove over the waters it 's one of the words used in in uh, Chinese for uh, the Holy Spirit. And that's on our website if you want to go read more about it. Uh, so it, it's very interesting to me uh, that uh, he goes all the way back and says, listen, on, on day three, uh, God called land to come up out of the waters and we created the land and the waters receded and they, they then had their bounds and there was an ocean. And most uh, most people who have studied creation carefully and studied the geology Believe that there was maybe one very large ocean and the rest of the world was mostly land but then the fountains of the great deep broke up and then you have rain falling down as uh, waters are coming up at the same time and it forever shifted we got the tectonic plates that broke apart and spread apart and now we have several oceans in the world uh, on top of that but he says if you go all the way back that had never happened. That was a start. Nothing like that had ever happened before. And then Peter says, hey, this same God that's the creator is also God the judge. And because he's sovereign, he, he, his will uh, can occur at any time and change any process because he designed and controls those processes. He can do what he wants to with water. And, and he did so in the flood. And we know that the flood destroyed all of mankind on earth except for eight souls that were aboard the ark. And you've seen us, and it's on our website too, that the Chinese word chuan, which means boat, means a ship or a vessel with eight people. The reason that Bible truths are reflected in the Chinese language is because it's one of the oldest written languages in the world. Not as old as Sumerian Sanskrit and one other, but it's pretty, pretty old. And so there are a lot of Bible truths from the first first 14 chapters of Genesis, and if you ever want to read about it, you get a book by Nelson Kang, K-A-N-G, uh, called The Discovery of Genesis. It's a really good uh, book on how Chinese characters show these truths. But it, 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 the thing is, none of this had ever happened previously, and it's never happened again since. Uh, so God interrupts in human history. That's, that's what God does. So Peter points out a huge flaw in their argument. And then the scoffers choose to be deliberately ignorant. Now, let me, let me help you with the word ignorant. The word ignorant doesn't really mean to be stupid. That's something different. Stupid means that you're, you're lacking in intellectual capacity. The word ignorant means you've chosen to ignore truths, and because you ignore what's there, you are ignorant. In other words, we're, any of us are ignorant when we ignore truth, right? And to be ignorant means to ignore something that's true. Scoffers deliberately put aside... The fact that the Old Testament prophesies the return of Christ, that there are pictures of the return of Christ in the Old Testament, that Jesus himself made this promise, and everything else Jesus has said is true, and that God has intervened in human history with water in the past. And and by the way, I don't know, we do know that God promised he'd never again destroy the whole world full of people with a flood. I still wonder sometimes about some of the floods of biblical proportions. I don't know how many of you have been watching it lately, but mainland China is going through floods of biblical proportions, and they've been in this for about five or six months now, and there are hundreds of thousands, literally, of people in China that have been displaced uh, by the flood that seems not to stop. Just go on YouTube and, and go looking for the floods in China, and you will see more than enough videos about it, and it's heartbreaking. But Peter asserts the truth of the creation and the universal flood. First Peter three twenty, which sometime this is we had we covered First Peter a number of months ago, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. In Second 2 Peter 2.5, he mentions it again. And God spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, notice, by the way, he says world, that's that Greek word cosmos again. So he means a world full of people. not just He's not just trying to destroy the planet. The planet is still here, although arguably changed, but it's a world of people. So God once destroyed the world, again, cosmos, which means the world of people, but he offers salvation to the same. Verse 6, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. So the, again, the planet wasn't destroyed, but people died in the great flood and this by the way is consistent with how that greek word is used in other places most notably john three sixteen: for god so loved the world and it doesn't mean the planet but it means the world of people that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life so god loved the world for god sent not his son into the world that there's that cosmos again to condemn the world cosmos but that the world cosmos through him might be saved. And so it's the world of people. Uh, John 1.9 talks about Jesus, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Again, not the planet, but the world full of people that Jesus uh, offers salvation to. Now, Peter does introduce an idea that's unique to him in the New Testament, although there is one verse in Revelation that kind of hints at it, but Peter's the only writer of the New Testament that says when God destroys the world again, he's going to destroy it with fire. Paul doesn't tell us this. The gospel writers don't really say that. But, but he says the future destruction of the world is by fire. So in the past, the world was destroyed by a flood in the word of God. And next time that God destroys the world, it will be by fire in the word of God. So right now, earth is kind of on the layaway plan. We've been reserved unto a future day of judgment. It's reserved, it's stored up like a treasure for fire and for judgment. It's kept for judgment. Now that's a sobering thought. That thought ought to cause each one of us to want to share Jesus with others because otherwise they're in a world that's being reserved for fire. And that's a frightening, frightening thought. By the way, uh, let's just look at a few of these phrases. Uh, verse 7, For by, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly people. Now by the way, the word heavens here as is often used in the New Testament refers to the atmosphere of the earth. It's not talking about the stars and, and the, the planetary bodies although I think the final judgment might even encompass those but he's talking about our atmosphere and our planet is being reserved for judgment. Verse 10 But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will disappear with a rushing noise and the celestial bodies will be destroyed by being burned up. And there he does mention celestial bodies, and the earth and the deeds done on it will be disclosed. Verse 12 While waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by being burned up and the celestial bodies will melt as they are consumed by heat. Now this is the only time you really find this concept in the New Testament, but it's not really a new idea because it is in the Old Testament. Isaiah 66, the last book, uh, last chapter of Isaiah for look, Yahweh will come in fire and his chariots like the storm wind to give back his anger and wrath and his rebuke in flames of fire. For Yahweh enters into judgment on all flesh with fire and his sword and those slain by Yahweh shall be many. Three times in one verse mentions that the coming judgment of God is by fire. In Malachi, uh, for, for look, the day is about to come burning like an oven. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. The coming day will consume them, says Yahweh of hosts. It will not leave behind for them root or branch. says, there's a fire coming. And interestingly enough, you remember the story uh, back in, I want to think it was 1940s if I remember correct. But there was a young man, he's a shepherd, and one day he's just bored and he's picking up a rock. And he's chunking it into some caves and suddenly hears something break and he goes in there. And finds all these pots and inside the pots there were old manuscripts and this is where we get that's, that place was called Qumran and that's where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls and most of these are writings that happen between the old uh, and New Testaments but there were ancient copies in there of the book of Isaiah that date back to 500 years before the birth of Christ which is pretty significant because a lot of people have read what Isaiah says about the Savior and conclude that Isaiah must have been written after Jesus was born because otherwise it could not have been that precise but we now know that was written at least 500 years before Jesus entered the planet as a baby in Bethlehem and so uh, those scrolls in, in the Dead Sea Scrolls often mention this idea of a coming judgment by fire so uh, even some non uh, sort uh, I start say non-biblical maybe that's not the best word but in some scripts that didn't make it into the Bible. Uh, there is also this idea because it was a common idea among Jews because of their understanding of the Old Testament that God would one day judge by fire. Now we keep hearing this phrase all throughout First and Second Peter over and over again about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, and what does that include? Well, if 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 you're in, and everybody is welcome to your own interpretation of the end times, because uh, I am not thinking that I have the the uh, the absolute correct thing. I'm willing to admit that I'm possibly wrong on the order of events, but as I understand it, there's going to be a tribulation. I think first there's going to be a rapture, and I'm, I happen to be a a pre-tribulationist rapture person. So I believe there's going to be a rapture. I believe there's going to be seven years of tribulation on the earth. I think there's going to be a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on an earthly throne. And at the end of that time, there's going to be a great white throne judgment. And then the present heavens and earth are going to be destroyed. And at that time, God gives us a new heaven and a new earth. And so at that great white throne judgment, at the end of the thousand years where the demons are loosed from the pit one final time and they they basically point out who's the real believers and who are not, and and then these things are thrown into the lake of fire. And I'll read you that verse in just a moment. Then as Peter, this, this is Peter wrote, it's gonna be their day of judgment and destruction. And as they're cast into the lake of fire, the heavens and the earth will be destroyed by fire and God just intervened catastrophically before in the flood. He's going to do so again. So let's look at Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne and one seated on it from whose presence earth and heaven fled and a place was not found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and small standing before the throne and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to their date. Now there's several books here. There's a book of life. There's just uh, means that you were born. There's a uh, a book of, of the Lamb where you were written in. <laughs> you're written into that book when you're a child of Jesus Christ or you're you're saved by Jesus Christ. And look, but look what it says here. And the sea gave up the dead who, who were in it. So what dead are in the sea? Those who died in the flood. Okay. Um, And and then it says, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. Hades is what we call hell. So death and hell gave up the dead which were in them. And each one was judged according to their deeds. And death and Hades, or death and hell, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So You know, you and I are never going to get into argument if you happen to say that people that don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ will spend eternity in hell. But if you hear me say it, I say they will spend eternity in the lake of fire because that's what these verses uh, attest to. So, God guarantees Jesus' return. When, you know, your guarantee is only as good as the company that gives it to you. I don't know if you've noticed that. I have bought stuff before, gotten a guarantee, and then later the company went out of business, and you're not going to find anybody to do the warranty work when the company's out of business. But because God's eternal, you don't ever have a problem with him going out of business. And so when he gives a guarantee or warranty for something, it's, it's absolutely true. Now... Peter's going to give us two reasons that Jesus hasn't returned yet. How many of you, and you can choose to answer this rhetorical question with a wave of the hand or not, but how many of you think sometimes you wonder why Jesus hadn't already come back, given the fact that this world is a big mess? Well, I'll go there. I wonder sometimes. Why hadn't he already done it? Well, Peter's going to give us two reasons, and I'm kind of glad he did this, because otherwise I'd be sitting around wondering that question for a long time. But the first thing he says is, he says, you need to not forget what Psalm 90 verse 4 says. And here's what Psalm 90 verse 4 says, and Peter quotes these words exactly. For a thousand years in your eyes, talking to God, are like yesterday when it passes, or like a watch in the night. So Peter says, don't forget that with God... A thousand, uh, a thousand years is like one day to him, and one day is like a thousand years. In other words, God isn't bound by time, so he's not affected by the perception of how long or short something is. Um, I don't know, but if all of you go out here and stand in the parking lot after service and just uh, get out close to the road and see how far down the road you can see and how far up the road you can see. Now, I can promise you, you're not going to see very far up here because the road goes up, and then it, 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 it goes down a little bit on the other side. You can't really see what's over the hill, but you can see a fair distance down here, uh, and you can see maybe to the overpass, maybe a little bit of the road on the other side, but that's about all you can see. But if I were to land a Bell helicopter out here in the parking lot, and we were to get in that helicopter and go up 500 feet... You could now see a long ways over here, and you could see a very long ways over here. And if we go up to, to 20,000 feet in an aircraft, yeah, you can see the farmlands and those little quilt-like patterns that are all over. And, and if you get a satellite in space, you can pretty well see an entire one half of the earth at one time. You see, the further up you go, the broader perspective you have, God is like, uh, is, it's almost like he's in a helicopter or a spaceship Over time, he's not bound by it. You and I are down here. We think very much about the past, present, and future, and we have a very short vision of what time is. But we are finite, so we see time through a finite perspective. God is infinite. He sees time through an infinite perspective. So to us, a little bit of time is a long time. So I I guess one of Judy's... um, well, the pastor has a double first cousin, and one of his sons yesterday turned 50 years old. And I'm thinking about Theron Turner, and I'm thinking, oh, 50 years old, how did that happen? He was just a, he was just a young kid, it seems like, yesterday. And, and that makes me feel really old, that somebody that was just a, a young kid is 50. What's that say about me? Uh, to me, 50 years sounds like a long time. Uh, now, I don't think 50 old anymore because I still feel pretty young, okay? In spite of the fact the pastor doesn't call me young because I don't have hair anymore. But anyway, I still feel young in spite of that. Uh, so 50 years seems like a long time. But, but the thing is we see time against time, but God sees time against the backdrop of eternity. And so for him, a 1,000 years is nothing. So one reason he hasn't returned yet is... It seems like a short time to God. Okay, but then Peter gives us another reason. I really like this reason and that is that God wants to see as many people as possible get saved. He is patient with us. How many of you are glad God's been patient with you? Now, I try to be patient with my kids and I think because I've been married to my wife for 40 years and she's a very patient and kind and loving person. She's she might just now be starting to rub off on me, which is probably why all the four children who are living at home still have their heads attached to their shoulders uh, so I'm glad that she is patient and it's rubbed off on me, but the reality is uh none of us are Anywhere close to being as patient as God is. So here's what he says, verse 9. The Lord's not delaying the promises some consider slowness, but is being patient toward you because he does not want any to perish but all to come to repentance. Thank God for that. He gave me time to repent. Thank God for that. God's time schedule is modified by his patience. And patience is one of his major attributes. I, some of you have, are not yet parents. You'll find yourself doing the same thing. You will modify your schedule by your patience. For example, when you're the father of six daughters and, and if you're ever in a house that has six girls and there's a limited number of bathrooms, you may notice that it's hard to get everybody ready to leave at a certain time. I Like the IBM commercial says, it's a little bit like herding cats. Not the easiest thing to do. Uh, so... Uh, you have to sometimes just sit and say, I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be patient. And and you leave. Ten minutes later, you thought you were going to leave. Or 15 minutes later, you thought you were going to leave. But it's okay. You're, you're trying to be patient. And you're trying to be kind. God, his schedule's modified by his patience. He says, and listen to what Paul says in Romans 2. Or do you despise the wealth of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Paul says, God's giving you time to repent and he's being good to you because he wants you to be attracted to him so that you'll repent and you'll enter into a relationship with him. So Peter describes this return for us, and it's kind of an interesting description. He, he basically says, we'll, we'll read those, well, I'm not going to read the verses again just for the sake of time because we've already read them. But this is where he says the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. He says there's going to be a rushing noise as the atmosphere is destroyed, that the elements of the earth are going to be loosed and they're going to melt with a fervent heat. And uh, basically, it's going to be a sudden and catastrophic end. See a thief comes without your being aware of his coming. he comes unexpectedly and he takes away things of value now hopefully all of you have some kind of security on your house. Maybe you got one of those ring doorbells that takes a video and you get a notification when there's motion at the door outside the house and I noticed that one of our neighbors lives oh, probably Oh, within a three quarters of a mile from our house, so not right close, but they posted yesterday that they had somebody throw a rock through a, a window in the back of their house, was trying to get uh, into their house. And so hopefully you've got some things. Uh, you come to our house, there's a big, you know, beware of dog sign. Now our dogs would probably lick you to death, but uh, I'm putting to beware of dog sign anyway to discourage people from going into the backyard. And they're, there's a very strong door in the back, very strong door on the front of the house. And we've got cameras up. And so we're 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 trying to discourage that. But but he says Jesus himself made the statement that Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. Look what Jesus uh Well, what Paul did, he says, for you well know that the day of the Lord is coming in the same way as a thief in the night. And then Jesus says in Revelation 3, 3, therefore, remember how you've received and heard and observe it and repent. If therefore you are not on the alert, I will come like a thief in the night and you'll never know at what hour I will come against you. He says, you better make ready for eternity. Because you never know when I'm coming. And when, he, when Jesus came the first time, he came as our Savior. When he comes the next time, he's coming as our judge. And there's an accompanying. Uh, catastrophe there's a conflagration that everything is dealt with by fire at the end of the millennium the heavens which is the earth's atmosphere and the starry sky not where God abides not where uh, there's the streets of gold and all those things that's eternal but but basically the the end of millennium the heavens the earth atmosphere the starry sky going to disappear with a roar in in some and in some way it's going to involve fire and then it says the elements uh melt with a fervent heat it basically says that the atoms the atomic structure is going to be loosed so that every molecule flies apart (laughs) and basically if you can imagine a nuclear explosion but then every uh, ounce of material on the planet is part of that explosion what a huge explosion it's going to be it's going to melt with a fervent heat which is why when we hear about the new heaven and the new earth it's not a retread job There won't be anything left of this world because God doesn't want one single thing that's ever been tainted by sin for us to spend eternity in. So he's making a new heaven and a new earth and it should be awesome in every way. Matthew 24, therefore be on the alert because you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, that if the master of the house had known what watch of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. For this reason you also must be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not think He will come. Which is why every time I hear somebody predict the time of Christ's return, I think it's not me. Now, I don't know what made me think of this, and this may not be entirely germane. But I think when I I think of the words catastrophe, this is one of those things. When I was going to school at Texas A&M University as an engineering student a lot of years ago, One of the things that uh, was a tradition, it was a tradition for 90 years, 90 years, up until 1999, which was the last year. So from 1909 to 1999, there was a tradition that before uh, Texas A&M would play uh, T-Sippers University, which was what Aggies refer to as that little orange school down in Austin that none of us care for. Okay, so before we played TU, that's UT for those of you in Rio Linda, but uh, when, when we played them, we would get together, and it was always around close to Thanksgiving week, we would uh, build this bonfire, and that's, that. you see the bonfire stack on the left, and this is a lot of wood, you can't really tell, if you look very at the bottom right-hand corner of uh, that picture, there's some little tiny people down there, this is a bunch of wood. And they would go out and they'd find dead timber and they would bring it in and they would stand the log straight up on the end, they would bundle cables around it, they would tie supports on it, and then they put another uh, stack on top of that, another stack on top of that, another stack on top of that. And then they soaked this thing with 10,000 gallons, this is why there's so much wood there, 10,000 gallons of contaminated jet fuel. Wasn't good jet fuel, stuff that couldn't be used, but basically kerosene. 10,000 gallons of contaminated kerosene. And then right on top, and you can't see it in this picture, but you see that single that single stick in the very top on top of that set an outhouse, and uh, they would put some picture of uh, maybe the UT logo or a picture of Bevo, who is the Longhorn at the University of Texas, or something like that, on top of it. I do remember one year for some reason they they put LSU up there because I guess that year we weren't playing UT at that time. Uh, but they 'd put this outhouse, and the idea was and this was this was uh kind of a weird thing they would start this thing on fire, and if the outhouse stayed up till after midnight, supposedly texas a m was was going to win the game because they had engineered such a great fire, but they engineered the outhouse so that uh, it would stay up until after midnight. And if it fell before midnight, the engineers at A&M considered it a failure, and it meant the football team was going to lose the next day. Kind of an interesting tradition. The year that I was there, I remember that uh, we had hostages, American hostages, in Iran. And so uh, the outside looked like the normal outhouse, and after the fire had been burning for a few minutes, uh, some engineers made this incredibly Uh, clever idea. The outer walls of the outhouse blew off and there were four inner walls and on all four walls of the outhouse was a picture of the Ayatollah Khomeini with the words burn baby burn painted over it because that was the American sentiment toward the Ayatollah who had been keeping our American uh, hostages captive for uh, like two years at that point. And and so uh, it's kind of an interesting tradition and there was another tradition associated with this fire, guys in the Corps, and I mean by this the Reserve Officers Training Corps or ROTC, or in other words, uh, uh, they were wearing military uniforms, and after college they were going to graduate as second lieutenants, and they'd go into the Air Force or the Army or the Navy, depending on which uh, ROTC group you were in. And, uh, but very often the freshmen, uh, the freshmen guys in ROTC, they had to have their heads shaved. And they had a lot of other things to do. So they looked like brand-new military recruits. Didn't have a lot of hair on it. But they would, they would be challenged to see if they could go up and light a cigar off the fire. And so they would run up to it and, and try to light a cigar off the fire, come back usually with no eyebrows left because your eyebrows would just melt away at that point. That was kind of another stupid tradition. But at any rate, this was kind of a thing. Well, something happened in 1999, as you see in that upper right picture. They were building... Uh, the bonfire and getting ready for it to burn, and uh, while they were preparing for it, uh, the the logs started to lean, and then they totally collapsed. It killed 11 students, it killed one former student, and it injured 27 other people. So in in spite of the fact that this had been a 90-year tradition, the university banned uh, bonfires forever. Now, Uh, there is a group that every year now builds the bonfire off campus it's not a school event it's not sponsored by the school hosted by the school it's not on the school property Uh, but there are some people who still do this although probably not to the significant extent that goes on here but this was nobody expected this happen because for 90 years everything had gone fine and the stack went up fine and it burned fine and it was a huge success and everybody went to the bonfire and you took a date to the bonfire and then one year just all of a sudden without any expectation it collapses and and it kills people it was a great tragedy it was a sudden and devastating thing like the coming judgment of God is going to be now something else about the coming of Jesus Christ is it's supposed to be motivational for you and me it should make us want to do stuff Peter believes that the fact that Jesus is returning should motivate us to holy living. In fact, he asks a question. What kind of people ought you to be? And that's a rhetorical question, a question we're already supposed to know the answer. If Jesus is coming, what kind of people should we be? We should be godly. That answer is obvious. We should be godly, we should be at peace, we should be seeking to glorify the Lord. But just in case there was some knucklehead out in the audience that didn't know the answer to that question, he tells us you ought to live holy and godly lives. So he asked a rhetorical question, but to make sure that an Aggie like me wouldn't miss the answer, he says you ought to live a godly and holy life. The word holy refers to a kind of separation from the world and it's sanctification or are being made more holy unto the Lord so that we live toward God. The word godly refers to piety before God, and the word lives in the present tense, and it's an imperative meaning that we are to be constantly living in light of the Lord's return. I, I don't know, but you might try this this coming week as every morning the alarm goes off, or in my case the bedroom lights turn on at a certain hour, and I wake up because the lights are on, Or sometimes I wake up just because I'm in pain. But make a point when you wake up to think the Lord might come today. Just tell yourself that. Live like that is the day that Jesus might return. And you want to be working. You want to be working when the master returns. See, scoffers constantly question the Lord's coming. And therefore they lead ungodly lives. But Jesus' followers anticipate the Lord's return and live godly lives. Now, here's an interesting question. And I get asked a lot of questions like this as a pastor. When is the Lord going to return? Don't have a clue. Well, is the Lord's return imminent, or are there some prophecies that have to be fulfilled first? Because, you know, there is a prophecy that says, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached unto all the world, and then shall the end come. And that makes you think that maybe every people group on the planet has to at least hear the gospel in their own language before the end would come. But I don't know that it means that. It might mean that. I hope it means that. Uh, But, you know, in reality, uh, I've noticed something. You may not have noticed this unless you've been looking at genetics or you've taken the 23andMe test. Um, It's fascinating to me that God says we all came from a single husband and a single wife. And that was the result of creation. You know what evolution has discovered now that we've uh, unlocked the human genome, and we've got all this DNA, it says that we all came from a single pair of adults in Africa, which by the way is probably not too far away from where the Garden of Eden was. They have it in South Africa, I think it's probably more likely the North, but that's where everybody came from. And they now say that based on the women's DNA uh, from your mother and your grandmother and all your mothers going up, they can trace back to these things called haplop groups. And there's 15 of them. Essentially, All of mankind started in one place in the world and then 15 different people groups broke out from there. And by genetics, we can trace the 15 areas they went to. I just think it's funny that science has finally caught up to the Bible and saying we all came from a single pair of uh, uh, one one male and one female. I just think that's remarkable. You know, one of these days, science is going to crawl over the top of the hill of knowledge and find out the theologian has been sitting there for centuries. And it's going to be a wonderful day that day. Uh, But at any rate, here's an interesting question I've not thought of before. And that is, is there any way we can speed up how soon Jesus comes back? Because Peter uses a word here. He says, hastening the return of the Lord. In other words, Peter seems to think that there's something we can do to speed up how soon Jesus comes back. And I'm thinking, what in the world would that be? Well... If he's delaying his return so that more people might be saved, then the one thing we could possibly do to speed things up is share Christ with more people faster. Maybe, and I don't know this because I cannot claim to know the mind of God, and there are preachers who will tell you that they do, and they're liars and charlatans. But maybe in the sovereignty of God, he has an idea of what that number is that's going to be his children for all eternity. I don't know that he's put a number to it. I'm not going to suggest that. I'm just thinking maybe that's one possibility. Peter seems to think that if we would share Christ, we would hasten the day of the Lord. Well, one thing we do know for sure, whether or not we can speed God up, we should live in such a way that we find peace in him and that were without spot and blemish in the same way that a sacrificial lamb had to be pure now by the way there's two different terms here you'll notice that he mentions something that we haven't really heard mentioned before over and over again in the old testament over and over again in the new testament we hear about the day of the lord but all of a sudden peter mentions a different kind of day the day of god whole new term see the day of the lord is at uh Is the the rapture, it's the, the tribulation, it's the millennial reign of Christ, it's the great white throne judgment, all of that is the day of the Lord. But when the great white throne judgment is over, the day of the Lord is over too, and then comes the day of God. What is the day of God? That's when we're living in righteousness because we're going to live in a city named after the righteous one and he himself will be there and there will be sin no more. I'm looking forward to that day. I'm not looking forward to the day of the Lord for a lot of people, but I'm looking forward to this day of God. Looking for and hasting, that's hurrying, speeding up, unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the old cosmic system gives way to a new heaven and a new earth, and that's what we look forward to. We don't look forward to this earth being destroyed, because when it's destroyed, some of our friends are going with it. We don't look forward to the coming judgment of the Lord because judgment's not good, even if you're watching other people get it and you're not getting it yourself. But we look forward to the day of God. It says it'll be the home of righteousness because the righteous one will be there. And what a contrast that's going to be. And Jeremiah describes this day in a few places. Listen to this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, I'll raise unto David a righteous branch. And a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah Titkinu in Hebrew, uh, Yahweh our righteousness. In those days, Judah shall be saved and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she, she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. We're going to live in a city named after Jesus. Jonathan Bunyan would have agreed with this next point, And that is that behavior is changed by Jesus' return. Look what he says in verse 14. Behold, the days come, so the Lord, I'll perform that good thing which I performed in the house of Israel and into the house of Judah. In those days, at that time, I'll call a branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, that's Jesus Christ, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah shall be saved, Jerusalem shall dwell safely, and this is the name, be called the Lord our righteousness. So Peter quotes Jeremiah uh, essentially. See, our behavior is linked to what we expect about the Lord's return. I believe your life is different if you expect Jesus is coming back. I believe that Jesus has to be really real to you for you to believe that he's coming back. So I want to be holy and godly. I want to make every effort to maintain a good reputation before God and men, to be blameless. Now, by the way, when, when the Bible uses this word blameless, it doesn't mean that we will just quit sinning. How many of you think that you are capable of never sinning again? I'm putting my hands in my pocket because I don't even want to raise my hand to show you how to do it. Uh, What does it mean? It means that when I sin, I have a heart that very quickly seeks to confess my sin and ask God to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. 1 John one nine: that if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Peter said back in chapter 1 and verse 4, "...whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises." That you might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. To be blameless simply means that we stay forgiven. Peter's coming to the close, the last three verses of the epistle, and he reminds us one more time of the patience of God. You see, the Lord's patience is because he wants people to be saved. He's not procrastinating on when to bring Christ back, but he's giving us a longer time to repent and lead others to repentance. I don't know if there's anybody here today you've never repented, you've never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, you've never uh, received Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're here today because God's been very, very patient with you, but he's waiting. He's waiting for you to receive Jesus as a Savior. The Lord's patience should lead us to repentance, and that's what Paul said in Romans 2-4 that we read earlier. So, and by the way, here's one more thing. I just noticed this this morning. I thought I got to add a slide. Don't hold on to your grudges. How many of you have ever had somebody do something or, or say something that hurt you on a personal level very deeply and it was hard to let go of? I know I have. Anybody else? Good. Dennis and I are the only two here that that's ever happened to. All right. Well, maybe two and a half. I saw another hand just flip up just for a moment. The Bible tells us in Galatians that 14 years after the Apostle Paul spent three years in the desert with Jesus Christ, seeing him as one born out of due time, he spent three years by himself going to seminary every day with nobody but Jesus. Then he tells us in Galatians chapter 2, he says, 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And one of the things that happened while he was on his travels is he uh, he came across the apostle Peter, and uh, the Peter. Peter was, uh, you remember that vision Peter had that these, these animals dropped down in a cloth and some of them, they were unclean animals and Peter's turning away from them in his dream and, and then God tells him, don't call, don't call that thing unclean that I have made clean. And basically he was telling Peter, hey, you need to know that Gentiles are part of the gospel too. And so Peter was changed by that experience. So Peter would then hang around with the Gentiles, and I think he probably ate with the Gentiles, and he probably ate some things that weren't Jewish, that weren't kosher. But then when a group from the church of Jerusalem came down to see him, he immediately changed his behavior. He wouldn't sit with the Gentiles anymore. He wouldn't eat their food anymore. He was trying to put on a good Jewish show for the Jewish brethren from the church of Jerusalem so that they wouldn't criticize him, and... Paul sees this behavior and he goes to Peter and basically says, Peter, you're a hypocrite. You changed your behavior just because of this. You're being a hypocrite. And and Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 "I that I withstood him to the face. Now I don't know about you, people giving me criticism is hard to take. As I've gotten older, I've tried to be more gracious about it and I've tried to Take it better, and sometimes I have somebody says, you know, Brother Robert, or sometimes it's Dad. Can I share something I see that I need to talk to you about? And I'll take a deep breath. You know, almost any time somebody says, we need to talk, well, that's bad news, you know. (laughs) You suck up your gut and think, oh, now, here comes another punch. Uh, What's happening? It's not easy to take criticism, Peter got criticized by the Apostle Paul, and he, Paul did it publicly. Well, that's the worst kind. You know, at least if you criticize me, have the, have the courtesy to take me aside and do it privately. But because Peter's sin was of hypocrisy was public, Paul made his rebuke public, and it was appropriate in doing so. You have public rebuke for public sin. But I want you to notice what Peter calls him in chapter 3 and verse 15. Paul, our dear brother, our beloved brother. Peter's not holding any grudges. In fact, I think if you were to ask Peter at this point, Peter is thankful for Paul calling him out for his own hypocrisy and that that calling out did not sever the love and respect they had for one another. Uh, here, Here's that passage of Galatians chapter 2 when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was condemned. For before certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he was afraid of those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also joined in this hypocrisy with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with them in their hypocrisy. In other words, Peter had a bad influence. He caused even Barnabas, who was one of the apostles to the Gentiles, to stay away from the Gentiles. So Paul calls him out for his behavior. Then I think he gives us an instruction to handle God's word carefully. Now, here's a kind of a weird ending to a book. Peter says, Hey, Paul wrote all these same things to you, uh, and Paul wrote with wisdom. But then Peter does something I, I find a little surprising. He says, By the way, some of Paul's stuff is a little hard to understand, it's a little obscure it's 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 a little maybe ambiguous it's it's difficult to understand he says i know that not everything paul has written is easy to understand now think of this paul often talked about the mysteries of the gospel how just as a husband and wife getting married is a mystery us entering into the gospel is a mystery and marriage is just a reflection of the mystery of how the bride of christ is married to the savior and that's a mystery paul called a lot of things a mystery and i tell you what when somebody keeps telling you something's a mystery it's kind of mysterious after a while isn't it that's a problem And Peter says, hey, you know, some of what Paul said was just hard to understand. But Peter says, look, I'm an unlearned man. I was a fisherman. You know what I'm going to do? I will study God's word. I'll read the Old Testaments. I'll interpret them in what Paul says. And he believed that what Paul was writing was the word of God, but he had to keep going back and studying to understand what Paul says. And then Peter says this. He says, some of those things that Paul has written that are so hard, Others have twisted and distorted, and they have wrested the scriptures to their own destruction. And then here's what Peter says See, if you're unstable, you'll pervert the Word of God when you read something hard in Paul's writings or in the book of Hebrews. But guess what? Unstable, perverse people do that with the entire Word of God. So be careful. How he handled dynamite. Here he is, as he does also in all his letters, speaking them about these things in which there are some things hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable distort, distort their own destruction, as they do the Scriptures. The Word of God is powerful like dynamite, and just as dynamite does bad things when it goes off, well, so mishandling the Word of God can do bad things. Finally, Peter says goodbye at the very end of his epistle. And basically he says this. Here's how he ends the whole book. Guys, you already know the truth. I've told you the truth. I taught it to you. I've reminded you of of it. I've written you two epistles reminding you of it again. You know the truth. Therefore, you're to be aware. And it's an imperative verb. You need to be constantly aware so that you're not led away by the air of wicked people who sound scholarly. Wicked people who who in their intelligence and their arrogance promise you freedom but can't really offer it to you because they just have intellectual stuff going on, but they don't really have are not really pointing you to Jesus Christ. And instead, do this. Grow in present tense imperative in in Greek, constantly be growing in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. And by the way, how do you grow in grace? Grace is the desire and the ability to do God's will. That's the best definition of it. Now you'll hear old-time preachers, and I've done this too, grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Perfectly fine definition. But what is grace really, if you look at how it's used in the New Testament? Grace is the desire to do God's will and the power to do God's will. It makes me want to do what Jesus wants me to do, and it enables me to do what Jesus wants me to do because his spirit is working through my heart by grace. But how do we get more grace? I don't know about you. I want more grace. You have to couple it with the knowledge of the Lord. What's the best way to get the knowledge of the Lord? Just read this book right here. Every day we need to be in the Bible. You should read the Bible more than you read any other book. You should read the Bible more than you listen to the news media. You should read the Bible as your number one source of faith and practice. And believers who struggle believers who struggle what are they doing well they're not spending time in the word that's one thing but believers who are growing in grace are deepening their relationship with Jesus Christ last slide here's the question for you where are you in your spiritual walk are you spending more time reading the word of God than you are other things are you growing in grace and in the knowledge of of our Lord. And if not, as Dennis comes to lead us on a song, I wonder if you would commit yourself to spending more time in God's Word and asking God to grow in a knowledge of Jesus Christ so that you grow in grace. Brother Dennis, come, and I believe Dennis is going to lead us in song number 360. Have thine own way.
1: Guys, I'm not a public speaker, but um, today we're celebrating Pastors Appreciation Day 2020. What a year it's been! Every year we take some time during the month of October to give honor where honor is due and honoring our pastors. God has truly blessed us with two pastors and their wives who have hearts to minister to those of us who are part of this church body. We've all had some decisions to make during these past months that impact our families, and even at times, employees and people we work with daily. At the beginning of this year, not one of us looked over the horizon of 2020 and predicted such difficult times for our world, nation, churches, or families. Yet we have taken it one day at a time, trusting God will help us to make decisions that will be correct. I highly doubt our pastors ever took Pandemic 101 as a course in seminary. As we take the time today to reflect on this year and what it has meant to us as individuals, let us reflect reflect on our pastors as well. We never imagined our church service would look like a large Brady Bunch intro. Let us say thank you for your effortless Sunday morning WebEx meetings, for taking the time Pastor Thornton in learning how to navigate calls, and for Pastor Robert tirelessly setting them up for us to continue to reach each other. While I'm sure you never expected our church service to look like they have this year, you both took it in stride. Now to the ladies who have stood beside you from day one. We know there is not a day that goes by that you are not praying and pouring into our pastors. Your encouragement to them has spilled out to us as the body. We know you as well are vital to the church. So on behalf of the church here, we want to say thank you.
0: Thank you. That was both unexpected and very gracious and and uh, just from my heart. Uh, most of you know that for five years I've had pain as pretty much a daily part of my life due to the fact a young lady hit me from behind because she was texting while she was driving and my life's not been the same, but I will say that for the past probably four months uh, that pain has been constant and constantly getting worse and I have often uh, been just about as discouraged as I can be and feel like I'm standing at the end of a cliff waiting for the next gust of the wind to push me over and I can tell you that it were not for my wife I'd have given up not only on the ministry but probably on life uh, months ago so I'm when we pastors tell you that our wives are not just uh, our wives, but they are part of the ministry, we really mean it, don't we, Pastor? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. You guys are dismissed. Thank you for your kindness and for that. And, you know, by the way, I I, I remember that once before we really prayed for new families and God sent us uh, over the course of the next uh six weeks, sent us about 69 people, and I believe he can do that again. I think we just got to get on our knees and start asking for it, and God will open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing once again. So we're, we're going we're gonna to recover from this, and I appreciate your faithfulness. You mean a lot. You are great encouragement. All right, you're dismissed. Join you in the fellowship hall. Thank you. Oh, you want to?